You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today I have a special guest. Uh, she's a clinical pharmacist with Optum Hospice Pharmacy Services, Dr. Elizabeth Miles. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Could you give our listeners a little background? Where did you grow up? I grew up in central New York. Um, I have lived here my whole life and bounced around between a couple of places in New York, um, between central and western New York. And so I came back home into my hometown and, and continued to work here. And it's beautiful here. You know, Liz, I'm really happy that you're here as a clinical pharmacist because when you talk about pain management in hospice care, there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of issues. So I'm glad oh. that you're here to uh, to provide some education and clear some of the air around pain medication in hospice care. Oh, sure. And there are so many, as you say, misconceptions and myths. And, um, you know, I think one of the one of the myths that I encounter uh, almost on a daily basis is that, you know, someone comes into a hospice program, they start the morphine, and then they're going to die, you know, because morphine is bad. That means the end is here. Yes. Um, and, and that's not, of course, true. Um, I think morphine is just a, it has this stigma associated with it that is sometimes really hard to overcome um, because other family members, friends may have had experiences with it in different ways that color their view of what it can do. And so I think a, a lot of what I, I view my role as is also an educator. Yeah. You know, I, I have the opportunity to provide um, a balanced viewpoint and, and some, some good information um, about how we use medication, why we use medication, uh, and sometimes that's different than what they had thought it would be. So as a clinician, I mean, uh, you've been working in this field for a while. Why does morphine get such a bad rap as, you know, it's there to kill, or if our loved one receives morphine, then they won't be awake to have a conversation with us. What do you think creates such mythology? Well, I, I think to some degree, there's, you know, there's a kernel of truth in there that people cling to, right? So, you know, even in, in movies and TV, how do they use morphine? You know, they give it to somebody who's dying already, and then they're comfortable and they fall asleep and then they die. And, and people think that it happens that quickly. You know, so if I give that one dose of morphine, you know, they're, they're going to be gone before the commercial break. And, and that's, you know, not reality, of course, but, um, but through, you know, what they have seen there and how they may have seen it in family members who have died, um, or even hearing stories of, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend, it, um, it perpetuates this myth that when someone enters um, enters a dying process or enters hospice, that that that's all you know that's all that's going to happen is they're going to start the morphine and then things are going to be over from there. Um, and you know, I would I would argue that in some cases that 
you know, that may be someone's experience when they perhaps enter hospice so late in their dying process that there isn't the opportunity for a long time for that hospice to work with the family, work with the patient and, and get things comfortable when there's such a short time frame to work with. So, you know, that's why I, I'd always advocate, you know, earlier intervention so that, yeah. that that perception is not perpetuated by necessity. I remember talking to a family member who was saying, my mom cannot receive morphine. And I asked why. She's like, uh, my friend's dad, uh, when was on hospice, she, uh, he received morphine and died not long. So I'm right. like, maybe that's not, it wasn't morphine. She's like, it's too close, <laughs> too close for comfort. <laughs> I know. And, and, you know, I think that there, there are definitely tactful ways to, to, you know, to get the, the thought across of, do you think that without the morphine, your, your loved one wouldn't die? And, and of course that's not, that's not true either. It just makes the, the process more comfortable. Um, but in in the way that I recommend using medication or using morphine um, is never to hasten anyone's dying process. That's an inappropriate use of, of medication. And that's part of the education process is that there's this thought or this fear that you give a dose of morphine and then the patient is, you know, sedated for the rest of their life, however long that is, and they will pass away in that state. Yeah. And that's not the reality of how we use medication and certainly not how I advocate for um, medications like morphine to be used. You know, I think that it's used for physical pain, um, and in some cases to treat shortness of breath that is commonly seen as patients decline, uh, but it's never to induce sedation or induce sleep. It's not used to treat agitation. You know, it's really for physical pain symptoms. Um, yeah. And I think providing that kind of education to make sure that families are, are comfortable. And in those cases where they just can't, they just can't use anything called morphine, um, sometimes using a different pain medication that is not called morphine is just a little bit more palatable. Yeah. For some family members. And, and so, you know, we, we get creative in some ways and, and find something that family members are willing to use because nothing is going to work if you don't give it. So we have to work with families to make sure that they're comfortable because we, we want to make sure that the patient is taken care of, but we know that it's more than just the patient, right? It's the whole family who may be involved. And, and so we have to treat the whole family and make sure that everybody's comfortable with what the process is, what the plan is, and, and how we're going to go about doing that to make sure that their loved one is, is comfortable. Because if, if they don't agree with it, it's either not going to be given, and then the patient's still going to be in pain yeah. and distress. So, you know, I think it, it requires that shared understanding, and it's a group effort to make sure that everybody is on board with, with whatever plan um, is found to go forward. I like that. Uh, what other misconceptions about pain medication have you had in your line of work? You know, another another one is that morphine treats everything, you know, <laughs> and that morphine will treat all types of, of pain. And of course, that's not true either. Um, I, I, I think I have a conversation daily with um, with hospice teams about what kind of pain we're treating. And how do we figure that out? Because 
Morphine doesn't treat all types of pain. It's a great drug and I'm so glad we have it, but it's not the end all and be all. And I, I think that part of my role with working with hospice teams is to ask a lot of questions um, and be able to dig a little deeper and figure out what we're treating. Um, because even though morphine is a great analgesic, it's a great pain medication, um, we have other types of pain and all pain is not equal and yeah. we don't treat it all the same. And just as every patient is an individual and their families, um, we have to approach each situation that way. You know, it's not a, a one size fits all. And being able to ask those questions about, you know, what kind of pain we're having, what does it look like? What does it feel like? When does it happen? Um, what has been helpful for it in the past? What has not been helpful for it? You know, all of those kind of questions can, can help give us a better understanding of how to build a plan going forward. And, you know, if we're looking at a, an inflammatory type of pain or a nerve pain that some patients have, well, we can't expect one medicine or even one type of medication like morphine to be able to treat all of those types of pain equally. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's, it's um, professionally, it's, um, it gives me a great opportunity to, to be able to look at the situation from different angles and to figure out how can we find something that's going to work best for this type of pain and, mm. and be able to do that with, minimizing side effects for the patient and the family and to, you know, to make sure that what the patient and family's goals are for treating pain are met the best way that we can. Um, so, you know, I think that, that being mindful of there's more than one way to address the situation is, is really important. You know, I've been working in hospice for a long time and I've never seen terminal ill patients struggle with addiction because of the pain medication we've given them. Talk to us about this myth that if they get this pain medication, uh, that they will be addicted, you know, to it. Oh, sure. That is another big um, concern that some patients have. You know, if I if I start morphine now, I'm going to get addicted. And then what am I going to do? Yeah. And, and again, this is a big education piece. So there's a big difference between addiction to a medication, which really implies continued use of a thing, of a substance. In this case, we'll say just morphine. So continued use of morphine even when it brings harm to yourself or others that you love. Now, that's maybe a simplistic view of it, but you know, to me, that's, that's how I explain it to patients mm -hmm. is that you know, I, I don't foresee that being a big concern when it's used for legitimate purposes and legitimate pain. It doesn't mean that we ignore um, warning signs or patient background or patient concerns, because we do have a very diverse population of patients who come into hospice. And there are patients who have a history of addiction or substance misuse or family members who have experienced that. And they're concerned about how they're using it now might impact that or you know, if I had a family member and this happened to them, would it happen to me too? 
And so I think when there are those kind of concerns, it's important to maybe take a pause and say, tell me more. Tell me more about what you're concerned about. Tell me more about why this is really worrisome to you. Um, and, and sometimes hearing those concerns, and, and certainly from my perspective, not jumping to an assumption of, you know, making a declaration, no, of course, you'll never become addicted, or that's ridiculous. Just do what I say. You know, <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere when we have that kind of, of attitude. So I, I, I try as much as possible to remain curious about um, about situations and ask those questions that that really lead to a deeper understanding of what the patient's concerns are. Because then I can meet them where they are. Yeah. Right. I, I don't want to start the conversation six steps in where my mind might be working. You know, I, I got to find out what their concerns are first and then be able to offer some education and information about, you know, the how, the why we would be um, recommending a, a medication in that way. With that, we'll take a little break. Let me reintroduce you. Our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Miles. She's a clinical pharmacist with Optum Hospice Pharmacy Services, and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Berman. We continue our conversation. Uh, Liz, could you talk to our listeners about the principle of double effect? Sure. So the, the principle of double effect um, usually means that using a medication, like a, a pain medication, like, uh, like morphine or something similar, does have effects on the body that could um, slow the respiratory rate and lead to death in some patients. Um, that is never our intended outcome in using a medication. And I think when we, when we use it or use a pain medication that has the potential for those outcomes, um, the intent of use becomes meaningful. Right. So, so when we are giving pain medication to someone who has a high level of physical pain because of their disease process, um, and we're using it or maybe increasing doses to treat their physical pain, what we can see in some patients is that their respiratory rate or their other um, vital signs may change. Um, and if that happens because of the medication um, or their, their death may be hastened because of that, we consider that sort of the double effect. We use the medication even though we know it may have this outcome in some patients, but it, it's not the intent. And that's why I say the intent matters because that, that's not how we use medication. We sort of accept that this is a known, um, a known outcome in some patients. But the way that we're really using it is knowing that the patient's body may be declining and their disease is progressing. Mm. And, and in truth, it's really their, their dying process that is happening. It's not the medication causing a patient's death. Your, your approach to pain assessment, I like it because it puts the patient fast. It's much more relational. 
I know that many hospice patients die without their pain being fully uh, put under control. Uh, what are some of the ways that are there to help assess for pain and then provide uh, the remedy for that? Um, well, you know, I think assessment is is paramount when we're we're dealing with patients and, and their pain. And it's not a one-time event, right? We don't just meet the patient and find out, oh, you have pain, let's do this. Good to know you. Um, I think it's a continual process of re-evaluation. You know, so finding out, as I mentioned before, what kind of pain are they having? Where is it? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Um, and if there is an intervention that we have put in place to treat that pain, we don't stop there. You know, then we have to come back and, and assess, all right, what did this intervention do? What did this um, pain medication do for the pain? Did it work? Did it not work? Um, and, and I think that the challenge we have with some patients, especially when they have really refractory pain that we just can't seem to get controlled, to me, is, um, is sort of hitting the pause button. So I, I often get um, consults for patients whose pain is, is just really out of control. And it seems like we've done everything that we can do and we have escalated doses of medications beyond what we normally think, you know, would, would help someone. And, um, and, and I get calls that say, well, what do we do next? How high can we go on the medication? And, and that is a tricky situation because opioids like morphine or other similar um, medications, many of them don't have a, a, a ceiling dose necessarily. So there's no magic number that we get to where we say, oh, we've reached this number, we can go no further. You know, it's, it's really based on what the patient is able to tolerate, but also what has been shown to be helpful. And so when I say it, we sort of hit the pause button, what I mean by that is when we have those really refractory cases where pain has been uncontrolled, we have increased medication and increased it multiple times, and pain remains uncontrolled. To me, that's a moment to step back and say, why is this not working the way we thought it should be working? Yeah. And, and I think that gives us another, um, another chance to say, are we barking up the wrong tree? Are we treating the wrong type of pain? Mm. You know, what have we missed in this assessment? Um, and, and I think that that is, is another piece of the puzzle that we, we never want to ignore. So we know that physical pain is, is, um, is perhaps maybe easier to control than other types of pain, like emotional pain or psychological pain or spiritual pain. Yeah. And, it, and if we don't address those types of pain, it becomes a barrier to getting their physical pain controlled in some cases. Hmm. And so that's one of the steps that, that I normally um, like to make sure is addressing it and fully realizing that, addressing some of those types of pain is not in my, um, in my scope, but I know that hospice programs have fantastic people who know how to better address those things. And, and I think that's, that's a great benefit that patients get when they're in a hospice program is that you have all of these different disciplines working towards a common goal, of making sure they're, they're comfortable. 
I like, I like, you know, I like that you brought that because there was uh, some years back I was uh, seeing a patient in Chicago, and this patient was in persistent pain, and the case manager kept increasing the dosage, but the pain was not going away. Uh, then until he said, "Can I speak to you know a chaplain?" And um, that's when we found out he had something that he needed to get out of his chest to confess spiritually. And when that was done, the pain was gone. So you're right. Yeah. That... <laughs> Some... Absolutely. You know, everything is is interconnected. You know, we can't treat um, symptoms in isolation, right? Because the patient is made up of all of the parts of them. You know, that's the concept of total pain. It's not just cancer pain or disease-related pain, but, you know, those those aspects of a dying process or a disease process that cause physical pain can also affect emotional, psychological, spiritual pain. You know, when your physical pain is hurting, it makes you feel more anxious, nervous, restless. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you that there's no good amount of morphine or any pain medication that we can give that's going to address those emotional issues. And yeah. And I think that's sometimes where we can um, get derailed a little bit when we rely only on pain medication, yeah. um, because I, I think that, that that doesn't do justice to our patients you know, to not focus on the whole patient. Yeah. And it's true that hospice organizations and palliative organizations are you know, equipped to deal with the concept of total pain. But truth be told, uh, there's under-treatment of pain in hospice care. And there are many variables. It could be the patient's cultural beliefs or even spiritual beliefs. But there are also aspects where the clinician is not comfortable to administer more pain medicine. How do we deal with that aspect? Well, I think, again, a lot of it comes back to education. Um, and sometimes it, it's being able to bring others into a conversation. So being able sometimes to talk peer to peer and being able to connect clinicians with others who have seen a similar situation. Um, because uh, sometimes in, in hospice and end of life care, it's not always a hospice physician perhaps who is treating the patient, but the patient's um, physician who has been with them for years and years and years. Sometimes there is hesitation to use medication in ways that we don't see outside of hospice because it's not commonly used or the doses of medication that we use might be much different and perhaps a little scarier than what they see in normal day-to-day -day practice. And I think those are the, the situations where providing education and support for, for that team, that physician or that prescriber can help make sure that the patient gets what they need. I suppose, again, it comes back to asking those questions and being curious and saying, even if it was just to that, that prescriber, that provider, tell me what you are concerned about. Is it a concern that if I give this dose a little bit higher, it is going to hasten death? You know, is that the concern? And how can we address that? Is that a realistic outcome of what we're seeing with the patient's situation right now, or do we have another way to look at the situation? So, so again, being curious and asking those questions. 
Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation. Uh, Liz, what do you do on a daily basis, you know, uh, for to treat pain? Well, as I said, I get the, the great opportunity to be able to, to do consulting for hospice and, and palliative care organizations. So, you know, it's frequently that I get consults for um, uncontrolled symptoms and, and pain being a major component of those kind of symptoms. So, you know, an, an example might be a hospice nurse would call and, you know, and say, I have a patient and their pain is not controlled. And we've already done everything that we know how to do. What else? Um, and, and through asking more questions and figuring out where we came from, you know, what have, what have we done already and where can we go? Um, and, and I think that being able to work as a team, um, both with that hospice, but even within our own um, internal clinical team, I, I have the opportunity to work with uh, a fantastic group of other clinical pharmacists who, um, who also do what I do. And, and being able to put our heads together sometimes um, to be able to come up with, with a plan. Um, I'm a firm believer in two heads are better than one. Yeah. Um, I don't have all of the answers. Um, and sometimes it's not always what we, what we think of. Um, you know, I think that we have to be willing to um, use medications in ways that we didn't necessarily think or um, being able to shift gears when what we're doing isn't working. And, and I think that that's, um, that requires a lot of flexibility and, and even a, a bit of humbleness to, to be able to say, well, this plan wasn't working. We need to switch gears. And, and I think that that's, that's something that we get a chance to do when patient's pain is not managed yet. So if I get a call and, you know, they're at very high doses of a medication. Um, then we start looking at, well, what else is, is going on? You know, can we address those other non-physical symptoms? And then it might be switching a medication to use a different opioid. You know, if we have to switch from morphine to a different or a different route of administration, if a patient can no longer swallow, to be able to maintain their pain control. Um, as they as they progress in their dying process. Yeah. Are there other ways to manage pain that does not involve opioids? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And and I think that that's a myth that we need to bust here is that, you know, of, of <laughs> course morphine is is not the end all and be all. So I, I mentioned before that there are other there are other types of pain that we need to address. And um, inflammatory pain or nerve pain or, or, or some other types of pain. And, and if we think of that, you know, if you've had an injury, you sprained your ankle and it got all swollen, 
morphine is not the drug that we would reach for to treat that swelling in that joint, right? We would, <laughs> we would reach for some sort of anti-inflammatory and, you know, you and I might take some over-the-counter ibuprofen um, to reduce that swelling and inflammation. And, mm -hmm. and that, that principle is really the same in our end-of-life patients. We don't use morphine if we're trying to treat inflammatory pain. Um, we don't use morphine if we're maybe trying to target specifically neuropathic pain, you know, when those nerves in the body are, are oversensitized and they're causing some, you know, shooting, stabbing, lightning strike kind of pain. Um, morphine may not be the best to treat that. So we have a lot of other medications that we can use um, to target that type of pain, uh, which I, I think goes a long way to, to easing families and patients' fears that morphine is the way to go for all things. So, yeah. you know, when we can also go to them and say, it sounds like the type of pain you're having might be this. What I would suggest is that we use an anti-inflammatory or we might use um, an anti-seizure medication to target nerve pain. And, you know, that might be a um, another one, or even an antidepressant hmm. to target some pain, which again, that goes back to education because sometimes when you say, I think this antidepressant might be helpful. And there is also a lot of stigma for some patients regarding mental health and use of antidepressants. And they say, well, I'm not depressed. No, thank you. And so we go back to that education piece where we say we could be using it for a different reason, you know, mm -hmm. to target a different aspect of, of your situation um, and not going from an assumption of, you know, I think you're just depressed and that's why you're having pain. And that's not why we would even suggest that kind of medication. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's a lot of education. I'm glad that you came. This, I think for us, this is a beginning of continuing to educate our audience because there's a lot of misconceptions around pain management in end-of-life care. So you bring really a lot to this discussion. I like how your assessment involves the patient and the family first, that collaboration within the clinicians and the patient and the family in understanding them and how to curate the perfect treatment plan for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because really it at the end of the day, they're the ones who are with the patient all the time. You know, the family, friends, caregivers, whoever it is that they call their family with them. And they're really the eyes and ears for the rest of the team to be able to say, this is what I'm seeing. These are my concerns. And even to say, this is what I'm seeing after we started this medication. Is this good or is this bad? How can we use that information to make sure that the patient is treated as best as we can. So what are your final thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm thankful that you had me um, here today to have this conversation with you. I, I think that, you know, one of my, one of my goals is to be able to share information about end of life care, about symptom management, pain management. And, you know, it's something I, I certainly am very passionate about because I can see the benefit that it makes in, in patients' lives. And far from being morbid and sad working with patients at end of life, I find this to be one of the most uplifting ways to practice 
my profession because it, it can make such a big difference. So, you know, I think that anyone who might have questions about end of life care, about symptom management, about pain management or medications, I, I would encourage them to go to a resource that's going to get them good, balanced, realistic information. Um, ask your friendly neighborhood pharmacist who can point you in the right direction. Ask your hospice team um, and make sure that, that we're really providing education to families, to patients as much as we can. And you with Optum uh, Hospice Pharmacy Services, you guys are doing an amazing job. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, blessings. That was Dr. Elizabeth Miles, who is a clinical pharmacist with Optum Hospice Pharmacy Services. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.